This is episode 168 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled The Painted Veil, The Book and the Movie. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today we're going to be talking about The Painted Veil, a 1925 novel by William Somerset Maugham. And this book is a little bit different than some of the others that we've talked about. It doesn't so much revolve around a pandemic as it is set in a cholera epidemic in China, possibly based on the real-life 1919 cholera epidemic, which killed 300,000 people. The title is from a sonnet by Shelley, if you remember him. I'll read it for you here. Lift not the painted veil, which those who live call life, though unreal shapes are pictured there, and it but mimic all we would believe with colors idly spread. Behind lurk fear and hope, twin destinies, whoever weave their shadows o'er the chasm, sightless and drear. I knew one who had lifted it, he sought. For his lost heart was tender, things to love, but found them not, alas, nor was there aught the world contains, the which he could approve. Through the unheeding many he did move, a splendor among shadows, a bright blot upon this gloomy scene, a spirit that strove for truth, and like the preacher, found it not." There's a question about whether or not this story is original with Mom, and in the preface, he wrote that this was the only novel that he wrote that was based on a story rather than a character, and he was thinking of Dante's Purgatorio, in which he says that Pia, a gentlewoman of Siena, uh, her husband suspected her of adultery and was afraid on account of her family to put her to death took her down to his castle in the Maremma, the noxious vapors of which he was confident would do the trick, but she took so long to die that he grew impatient and had her thrown out of a window. Okay. The story starts with a bang, literally and figuratively. Kitty is in her bedroom with her lover, Charlie, when the doorknob turns ominously. Then the knobs to the windows are tried. They don't open because they're all locked, but Kitty is terrified. And with good reason, to her horror, it was her husband, Walter, who was trying to get in, and he is very angry, very angry at discovering her betrayal. That's not how the movie starts. I'm talking here about the 2006 movie, which was actually the third adaptation of the book. This one was starring Naomi Watts and Edward Norton, 
and leave Schreiber as Kitty's lover. The movie starts with Kitty and Walter arriving in China, where he has brought her to accompany him on his trip to help with the cholera epidemic. He's a bacteriologist. This is the role played by Edward Norton. He's a bacteriologist who studied as a doctor, as, by the way, did a mom. And in this scene, it's muddy and raining, and they're very silent, sitting very still in this remote landscape. Then you get a flashback to London, where they met. But that opening allows the movie to set the tone with these dreamy landscapes in subdued tones with exotic scenery and a really heavy reliance on the soundtrack. And it reminded me of movies like Out of Africa and The English Patient. So it sets you up right away for romance, which is definitely the focus of the movie. The tagline for the movie is, sometimes the greatest journey is the distance between two people. The book, not so much about romance. In fact, I would say the book is more about sex. The book is often sharp and ironic, even edgy. Here, for example, is the description of Kitty's mother, who is this manipulative and really unkind woman. Mrs. Garston was a hard, cruel, managing, ambitious, parsimonious, and stupid woman. (laughs) Great intro, right? She's really pushy. She aggressively nags her husband Uh, to assume greater career aspirations than he's comfortable with and generally makes makes him miserable. He tries at one point to explain to her that his current job is one that he's happy with, and a bird in the hand was worth two in the bush, he told her, to which she retorted that a proverb was the last refuge of the mentally destitute. There's a a lot of uh, wit, you know, and kind of quipping in the book that's very much out of character with the movie. She also spends considerable effort shoving her daughters to marry well and sets up competition between them, which leads to acute misery on the part of Kitty, who in the movie is played by uh, Naomi Watts, who rushes into a marriage with Walter, even though she doesn't love him. And she does this after her younger sister gets engaged. So she marries in a panic. All right, flash forward, Kitty has an affair and her husband Walter finds out. In the book, this is simply plot and action. We see a lot of Walter through Kitty's eyes and she's not very complimentary. She sees him as weak and as head over heels in love with her although we do get the sense that he's not quite as witless as she makes him out. He comments to her at one point, well, you know, women are often under the impression that men are much more madly in love with them than they really are. So, hmm, makes you think. I do want to contrast this with the movie. Uh, Walter is played by Edward Norton, and, you know, he's not your macho Hollywood actor, but he does have a quiet power and alertness and confidence in his movements and the way he speaks that signifies already to the audience that he's a pretty interesting character and Kitty better her better watch herself around him. And I'll just comment here. 
I do think that Ed Norton really makes the movie. I think he's a truly remarkable actor and maybe a little bit underrated for the same reasons that Kitty underestimated Walter. Norton had his debut in Primal Fear, and I don't know if you remember that movie, but I remember the hairs going up on my arms when I realized what he had done in that role. He got his first Academy Award nomination for that movie. He might be next best known for Fight Club, and it appears that he's a rather picky artist, more concerned with the ultimate result than being a celebrity So in other words, probably perfect to play Walter. And I honestly do believe the movie would not be as good if it hadn't been him who was chosen for the role. And he was involved uh, extensively in bringing that movie uh, to fruition. And we'll talk a little bit later about what he had to say about the book. Okay, back to the action. Kitty knows that Walter knows about the affair, and he knows that she knows that he knows, even though they don't speak of it. And Walter tells Kitty that he intends to go to China to help with the cholera epidemic, and we have this interesting dialogue. Where is this place, she asked after a pause. My Tanfu? It's on a tributary of the Western River. We should go up the Western River and then by chair. Who is we? You and I. She looked at him quickly. She thought she had heard a miss, but now the smile in his eyes had traveled to his lips. His dark eyes were fixed on her. Are you expecting me to come too? I thought you'd like to. Her breath began to come very fast. A shudder passed through her. But surely it's no place for a woman. The missionary sent his wife and children down weeks ago, and the APC man and his wife came down. I met her at a tea party. I've just remembered that she said they left someplace on account of cholera. There are five French nuns there. Panic seized her. I don't know what you mean. It would be madness for me to go. You know how delicate I am. Dr. Hayward said I must get out of Hong Kong on account of the heat. I could never stand the heat up there. And cholera. I should be frightened out of my wits. It's just asking for trouble. There's no reason for me to go. I should die. He did not answer. She looked at him in her desperation, and she could hardly restrain a cry. His face had a sort of black pallor, which suddenly terrified her. She saw in it a look of hatred. Was it possible that he wanted her to die? She answered her own outrageous thought. It's absurd. If you think you ought to go, it's on your own lookout. But really, you can't expect me to. I hate illness, a cholera epidemic. I don't pretend to be very brave, and I don't mind telling you that I haven't pluck for that. I shall stay here until it's time for me to go to Japan. I should have thought that you would want to accompany me when I am about to set out on a dangerous expedition. He was openly mocking her now. She was confused. She did not quite know whether he meant what he said or was merely trying to frighten her. I don't think anyone could reasonably blame me for refusing to go to a dangerous place where I had no business or where I could be of no use. You could be of the greatest use. You could cheer and comfort me. Right. So she refuses to go. Then it comes out. that, And he says that if she doesn't go, he will petition for divorce and name her lover publicly. He says... I'm afraid you've thought me a bigger fool than I am. 
So Kitty loses her cool and says she and Charlie are in love and that she doesn't love Walter. And then on his side, he says Charlie won't divorce his wife and marry her. And she rises to the bait. It's really uncomfortable. You don't know what you're talking about, she cried. You stupid fool. His tone was so contemptuous that she flushed with anger, and perhaps her anger was greater because she had never before heard him say to her any but sweet, flattering, and delightful things. She had been accustomed to find him subservient to all her whims. If you want the truth, you can have it. He's only too anxious to marry me. Dorothy Townsend is perfectly willing to divorce him, and we shall be married the moment we're free." Did he tell you that in so many words, or is that the impression you've gained from his manner? Walter's eyes shone with bitter mockery. They made Kitty a trifle uneasy. She was not quite sure that Charlie had ever said exactly that in so many words. He said it over and over again. That's a lie, and you know it's a lie. He loves me with all his heart and soul. He loves me as passionately as I love him. You found out. I'm not going to deny anything. Why should I? We've been lovers for a year, and I'm proud of it. He means everything in the world to me, and I'm glad that you know it last. We're sick to death of secrecy and compromise and all the rest of it. It was a mistake that I ever married you. I should never have done it. I was a fool. I never cared for you. We never had anything in common. I don't like the people you like, and I'm bored by the things that interest you. I'm thankful it's finished. He watched her without a gesture and without a movement of his face. He listened attentively, and no change in his expression showed that what she said affected him. Do you know why I married you? Because you wanted to be married before your sister Doris. It was true, but it gave her a funny little turn to realize that he knew it. Oddly enough, even in that moment of fear and anger, it excited her compassion. He faintly smiled. I had no illusions about you, he said. I knew you were silly and frivolous and empty-headed, but I loved you. I knew that your aims and ideals were vulgar and commonplace, but I loved you. I knew that you were second-rate, but I loved you. It's comic when I think how hard I tried to be amused by the things that amused you and how anxious I was to hide from you that I wasn't ignorant and vulgar, scandal-mongering, and stupid. I knew how frightened you were of intelligence, and I did everything I could to make you think me as big a fool as the rest of the men you knew, and so forth. So they have this big fight, and she accuses him of being weak. Kitty could more easily have coped with the situation if he had raved and stormed. She could have met violence with violence. His self-control was inhuman, and she hated him now as she had never hated him before. I don't think you're a man at all. Why didn't you break into the room when you knew I was there with Charlie? You might at least have tried to thrash him. Were you afraid? But the moment she had said this, she flushed, for she was ashamed. He did not answer, but in his eyes she read an icy disdain. The shadow of a smile flickered on his lips. It may be that, like a historical character, I am too proud to fight. Now, in the movie, the scene takes place after they're already in China, so the nuance of the scene is really different. So when she says, why didn't you break down that door, and he says, maybe I'm just too proud to fight, It sets it up so now she can say, 
I don't know about that. And the possibility of romance between them stays alive. And that's a key difference between the book and the movie. I'm sort of surprised by how many people said they preferred the movie, even people who really, really liked the book. But it probably shouldn't be. I mean, the movie is really a love story, while the book is not. The book is more about personal transformation when you're exposed to something like a cholera epidemic or just growing up and life experiences. The characters in the movie, however, are much more likable. The screenwriter Ron Niswainer worked with Norton on the screenplay, and Niswainer, I hope I'm not butchering his name, described it as a romance for guys and said movies often don't show how men's hearts can be broken. And for his side, Norton said, I like to think that we didn't change the book so much as liberate it. We just imagined it on a slightly bigger scale and made external some of what is internal in the novel. He described the novel as almost unremittingly bleak, And he explained that he changed the story to say, you know, I went on the assumption that if you were willing to allow Walter and Kitty to grow, you had the potential for a love story. All right, now back to the book. We're back to this humiliating scene where Walter turns out to be right. And he tells her, oh, my dear, it's rather hard to take quite literally the things a man says when he's in love with you. And indeed, Charlie has no intention of marrying her, and he sends her back to Walter with what he describes as a Hobson's choice, a choice between something and nothing, what we might call today a take-it-or-leave-it option. And he finally says flatly that he won't marry her. And so uh, here, we'll take up with the book again. Do you want me to go? It's Hobson's choice, isn't it? Is it? It's only fair to tell you that if your husband brought an action for divorce and won it, I should not be in a position to marry you. It must have seemed an age to him before she answered. She rose slowly to her feet. I don't think that my husband ever thought of bringing an action. Then why in God's name have you been frightening me out of my wits, he asked. She looked at him coolly. He knew that you'd let me down. She was silent, vaguely as when you're studying a foreign language and read a page which at first you can make nothing of till a word or a sentence gives you a clue and on a sudden suspicion, as it were, of the sense flashes across your troubled wits, vaguely she gained an inkling into the workings of Walter's mind. It was like a dark and ominous landscape seen by a flash of lightning and in a moment hidden again by the night. She shuddered at what she saw. She goes home and tells Walter she's coming with him. And his response? Oh, good. Uh, They undertake a rather challenging journey as she's still very lovesick, but Walter is freezing icy cold to her, and she really wonders if he wants her to die, and also if he might not be entirely sane. Now here's how Mom describes their arrival, and we do get to see a little bit more of his writing style here. Now they came to the foot of the hill, and the rice field ceased. The bears took it with a swinging stride, 
The hill was covered close with little green mounds, close, close to one another, so that the ground was ribbed like the sea sand when the tide had gone out, and this she knew too, for she had passed just such a spot as they approached each populous city and left it. It was the graveyard. Now she knew why the bears had called her attention to the archway that stood on the crest of the hill. They had reached the end of their journey. They passed through the archway and the chair bearers paused to change the pole from shoulder to shoulder. One of them wiped his sweating face with a dirty rag. The causeway wound down. There were bedraggled houses on each side. Now the night was falling. But the bears on a sudden broke into excited talk and with a jump that shook her, ranged themselves as near as they could to the wall. In a moment, she knew what had startled them, for as they stood there, chattering to one another, four peasants passed, quick and silent, bearing a new coffin, unpainted, and its fresh wood gleamed white in the approaching darkness. Kitty felt her heart beat in terror against her ribs. The coffin passed, but the bearers stood still. It seemed as though they could not summon up the will to go on, but there was a shout from behind and they started. They could not speak now. They walked for a few minutes longer and then turned sharply into an open gateway. The chair was set down. She had arrived. Now you can see how the movie and the book kind of come together with scenes like that, but generally the book moves very fast, mostly action and dialogue. Mom was a storyteller and his books were terrifically popular because I think he had this kind of page-turner style. His first novel, Liza of Lambeth, was about working-class adultery and its consequences, uh, so uh, kind of spicy. And it was based on his work as a midwife in a South London slum. It sold out so quickly that he quit his day job as a physician and devoted himself to writing full-time. And he became allegedly the highest paid author during the 30s. You can see why with these themes and this kind of fast-paced writing, at least for its time. And he does have talent. He describes here Kitty's first morning. The bungalow stood halfway down a steep hill. And from her window, she saw the narrow river below her and opposite the city. The dawn had just broken, and from the river rose a white mist shrouding the junks that lay moored close to one another like peas in a pod. There were hundreds of them, and they were silent, mysterious in that ghostly light, and you had a feeling that their crews lay under an enchantment, for it seemed that it was not sleep, but something strange and terrible that held them so still and mute. The morning drew on, and the sun touched the mist so that it shone whitely like the ghost of snow on a dying star. Though on the river it was light so that you could discern palely the lines of the crowded junks and the thick forest of their masts, in front it was a shining wall the eye could not pierce. But suddenly from that white shroud a tall, grim, and massive bastion emerged, it seemed not merely to be made visible by the all-discovering sun, but rather to rise out of nothing at the touch of a magic wand. It towered, the stronghold of a cruel and barbaric race over the river. 
but the magician who built worked swiftly, and now a fragment of colored wall crowned the bastion. In a moment out of the mist, looming vastly and touched here and there by a yellow ray of sun, there was seen a cluster of green and yellow roofs. Huge they seemed, and you could make out no pattern. The order, if order there was, escaped you, wayward and extravagant, but of an unimaginable richness. This was no fortress nor a temple, but the magic palace of some emperor of the gods where no man might enter. It was too airy, fantastic, and unsubstantial to be the work of human hands. It was the fabric of a dream. The tears ran down Kitty's face and she gazed, her hands clasped to her breast and her mouth, for she was breathless, open a little. She had never felt so light of heart, and it seemed to her as though her body were a shell that lay at her feet, and she, pure spirit. Here was beauty. She took it as the believer takes in his mouth the wafer, which is God. And to our uh, theme here about the cholera epidemic, after a short time, uh, she becomes more and more aware of what's happening. Vaguely, she knew that terrible things were happening there, not from Walter, who, when she questioned him, for otherwise he rarely spoke to her, answered with a humorous nonchalance that sent a shiver down her spine, but from Waddington and the Amma. The people were dying at the rate of a hundred a day, and hardly any of those who were attacked by the disease recovered from it. The gods had been brought out from the abandoned temples and placed in the streets. Offerings were laid before them and sacrifices made, but they did not stay the plague. The people died so fast that it was hardly possible to bury them. In some houses, the whole family had been swept away, and there was none to perform the funeral rites. The officer commanding the troops was a masterful man, and if the city was not given over to riot and arson, it was due to his determination. He forced his soldiers to bury, such as there was no one else to bury, and he had shot with his own hand an officer who demurred at entering a stricken house. The movie is more aware of the time period and also about colonialism. They add in some current events, and Walter has some things to say about the nuns who are presented in the book as as wholly pure. Walter, in the movie, says, none of us are in China without a reason. Finally, I want to go back to sex. There are steamy scenes in the movie, but they're pretty conventional. Mom's personal life was much more complicated, and some of those ambivalences show up in the book. He did marry uh, to a woman he started an affair with while she was married. Hmm. But the marriage was unhappy, and they divorced after 13 years. They were married during the writing of The Painted Veil, though they divorced uh, shortly after the book was completed. Mom became exclusively homosexual and lived successively with two men, uh, with one until that man died, and then with a second until Mom himself died. And Mom was quoted as saying, I tried to persuade myself that I was three-quarters normal and that only a quarter of me was queer, whereas really it was the other way around. None of that shows up in the movie, can you imagine? But there are hints in the book that sexuality is troublesome. 
and I won't spoil it anymore for you. So uh, you can find out more if you read it, which I think that you might enjoy it. And it's pretty short, actually. There's also some interesting feminist views in the book that don't show up at all in the movie. Interesting. At one point, Kitty talks about her sexual feelings, and Charlie, who's such a stuffed shirt, says, well, I'm fairly broad-minded, but sometimes you say things that positively shock me. And then at one point, Kitty was talking about having children uh, with her father, and she argues that she wants to bring a daughter into the world. I want a girl because I want to bring her up so that she shan't make the mistakes I've made. When I look back upon the girl I was, I hate myself. But I never had a chance. I'm going to bring up my daughter so that she's free and can stand on her own feet. I'm not going to bring a child into the world and love her and bring her up just so that some man may want to sleep with her so much that he's willing to provide her with board and lodging for the rest of her life. Okay, 1925, just saying. And then finally, because of the emphasis on nuns and their work, and even that excerpt that I read for you, even though Walter is a bit cynical about them, you might think that Mom was religious, but he was actually agnostic and did not believe in an afterlife. The book and the movie do kind of come together in this idea, though, of transformation and finding a path. So I'll close uh, with this final excerpt from the book, um, but not before I encourage you to read the book and watch the movie and see what you think. The sun rose, dispelling the mist, and she saw winding onwards as far as the eye could reach among the rice fields, across a little river, and through undulating country, the path they were to follow. Perhaps her faults and follies The unhappiness she had suffered were not entirely vain if she could follow the path that now she dimly discerned before her, not the path that kind, funny old Waddington had spoken of that led no whither, but the path those dear nuns at the convent followed so humbly, the path that led to peace. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.